Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards, to discuss race and Christianity in modern America as it relates to current events. Michael was deeply impacted by Dr. Edwards' article in Christianity Today from May of 2020 titled, The Revolution Will Not Be Videoed. The link to this article can be found in our show notes. Dr. Edwards is currently Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and author of the forthcoming Might from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. In addition to his academic work in biblical studies, he has served as a pastor in Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., and Minneapolis. So let's join in on their conversation, and here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Do you feel at all as if sometimes white people in reaching out to you are kind of asking you to help them be responsible for the problem that that oppresses you and other African-Americans? Oh, yes, without question. I think that that's I'm feeling it on two levels. One is that I think uh, people I've known for a long time have actually probably been less uh, of an issue because they they've known me. So they know the issue. So their check-ins with me are more about how I'm feeling emotionally and such. But, but folks who are newer or maybe only know me through social media tend to, um, uh, I guess, want me to help them understand something that might take years to unpack. Um, and also maybe to alleviate certain guilt. You know, there's, uh, there's times when I'm approached and people will start off with a litany of things that they've done. You know, I've done this or my family's done this, or we've given money to this. And, and it's almost as if they're looking for my blessing in some way to say, well, you're good. And, uh, but I, but I'm in no position to do that either. So it does. So it puts me in a weird position to know how to respond or what they're looking for. And if I'm the person that they really need to be talking to. So yeah, yeah, you, you hit it. There's some, some of those things. 
Well, all the more reason why I'm grateful that you did decide to do this interview. And I have to confess, you know, I, I'll, I'll start with just sharing how I'm doing. Um, I'm one course away from a minor in black studies from when I was an undergrad. Um, I have um, a cousin who's married to a black man. My own um, sister has uh, basically stepchildren. They're African-American and lots of other, you know, I have black friends and I'm putting the air, the air quotes in there. And what has been really different yeah. is the situation with Mr. Floyd has unfolded with his murder is that I've come to a place of I can have all of those feathers in my woke cap, but I've not actually confronted within myself the issues that are still there uh, around privilege and really sometimes subtle issues of prejudice and maybe even racism. And I think the thing I've I, I've um, I want to refer to your Christianity Today article because sure. that that's what really spawned my desire for this conversation. I read that and I was moved to tears. Mm -hmm. And as I researched you for this podcast, I realized, oh, I know who you are. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know of you through your friend Greg Boyd. And uh, he's yeah. he's one of my theological heroes. That's kind of the, the fly in the ointment. Yeah. And um, you said some things in that conversation that were really, really um, stimulating, thought-provoking, and just so good. And one one brief statement was, when we hear the other, our worldview changes. Hmm. I'm, I am curious yeah. in terms of just how you're doing and how this is all impacting you emotionally in light of what you said, but also what does it mean to hear the other yeah, that's different? Yeah. Right. And that that, wow, that happens at a lot of levels, right? I mean, I think for me, um, as a as a male, I I wound up you know in, in early on in evangelical circles being taught that women could not you know minister publicly right, so I thought of that in terms of you you know the way Bible verses were used. So I tried to have this objectivity that people would you know were saying, but well, that's just the way it is. But actually, I needed to hear from women. I needed to hear from women how they heard those Bible verses and how they were treated in the church as a consequence of, of, of the submission language or the prohibition language, right? So in other words, my exegesis had to also be coupled with, uh, with, with real life implications. <laughs> and, and then to find out that sometimes the exegesis wasn't so objective. It was, it was born out of a place of privilege and power. So, so what I'm getting at is that my views on women in ministry have been shaped by exegesis, but also by women. So I think the same thing happens with issues of race is that we, we can sometimes take positions that we think are right because we've read something or we were told something or we have some anecdotal evidence, but we're not really paying attention to the realities. Um, um, so yeah, when we start to, to truly listen to, to others, I think we can't help but to be changed. And listening, of course, I mean that in a broad, deep sense of the word than rather, rather than just letting the sound come in. I mean, really taking in what people are saying. And also the numbers of people do matter. In other words, it's maybe not an outlying voice to say there's injustice. When you see hundreds of people saying, yes, this is my story too, this is my story too, it starts to, it should start to... Um, really make an impact on anybody that's paying attention. 
And so this whole idea of the perspective that we have, you address that in your article in Christianity Today. And uh, is it okay with you if I just read a short paragraph? But you wrote, referring to the videos of Mr. Floyd's murder, you said the videos have helped some white people to see a bit of what many black and brown people know. White America has long had its knee on our necks. I'm sure that some who just read that sentence are saying, not all of white America, but that's the problem. It's hard for people of color to feel that white America is with us and not against us. White America has not demonstrated the collective resolve to repent, rebuke, and reorient itself against racial injustice. That includes Christians. White Christians can opt out of outrage over racial injustice. The status quo works for them. Strong and very, very courageous words. Um, And indeed, that's one of the reasons why you have felt like you pay a price when you speak out like this as a Christian. What struck me as as I read that, and a couple of metaphors you used that followed, was this idea of that I can opt out. And for whatever reason, um, there seems to be just a confluence of things happening in me personally, Mm. socially, culturally. It may even involve the COVID that I don't feel like I can opt out, at least Mm. in the way that I have in the past. And I don't want to put myself above anyone else. Yeah. But can you unpack those words? You know, another metaphor you used was uh, that these issues can be an elective for white right. people as, right. a quote, as opposed to a required course. Right. Just, just talk more about that. And specifically, the, the perspective from a white Christian that wants to minimize this and not oh. see it as something that's so much a broader issue. Sure. Well, there's, there's several le- levels here once again, and I'll try to um, – uh, be succinct here. Um, so let's let's take. Well, I'll give an example, and maybe that will get at the answer. I have uh, white Christian friends who who are uh, trying to deal with this pandemic, right, and are sending information to the congregations, or they're you know trying to keep keep the community going, right, even though you have to be separated or or um, geographically distant. And and they send out um, comments, and for some reason, I'm on the mailing list of one of these. Um, pastors, even though I don't go to his church, and but he's known me for years, and and we've had all this unrest going on in the country, and he hasn't has never mentioned it and to his congregation. It's just not an issue for him. Now I happen to know him personally, and I've known him for a lot of years. That it, it, it I, I can't speak for him, but the silence says it's not important enough for me to address to my people. You know, even though I have their ear. And uh, and have regular communication with them, and he's not the only example. I mean, there's there's many pastors I know, and I've and I've been in, in around Christians and in their churches that if if it sounds kind of like politics to them or something that's uh, partisan or it's going to get at an election issue, they don't want to touch it unless it falls in something they think would be really comfortable for the congregation to hear. So that's the opting out part. I mean, it's sort of, there's no personal skin in the game, as they say, there's, there's nothing to, there's nothing to, um, to, to lose by being silent, right? What they feel like they might lose if they speak, right? They might, I, I mean, even Greg Boyd, our friend that you just mentioned, he, he tweeted something recently that said he wanted to uh, to commend any pastor that did speak out because he said they might not have a job come Tuesday. You know, it's like 
there's those folks who, 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 you know, really it, it would become an issue for them. But the second part I want to get at is when I, when some people get offended, when you, if, if I use the general terminology of white Christianity, I, I do that. I did that on purpose because part of the deal is that there's a Christ, that there's a collectivism about Christianity. It's supposed to be a communal faith, but we tend to treat it individualistically in America. So you're going to have those individual Christians who say, but I never did this, or my family never did that. But the problem is you're part of a bigger thing. You're part of a bigger collective. Your ability to distance yourself from what you see as injustice still uh, negates the reality that you're part of a bigger structure, a bigger system that still works for you. In other words, you could be a pastor who, who has said nothing about race or cares nothing about these issues, and you could get called to a congregation to serve that congregation, and they would be happy for you to never mention these things. So now you are part of a system that never has to address uh, injustice, even though you might say, I personally don't feel um, any animosity toward, toward people of color or toward Black people or whatever. In other words, that individualism works against what Christianity is supposed to be, which is a communal uh, faith. So that, that touches on what I was getting at. I, and I use the word collective in that quote that you gave, because I think there should be a collective outrage from, um, from, Christian, from white Christians. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, in in uh, John chapter 8, it talks about how the truth will set us free. And Dr. King obviously referred to that again and again and again. And it seems like evangelicals in the last 50 years, maybe longer, I'm only 55, so I don't know, have referred to truth as the scripture. And it seems to me that truth and scripture is larger than that, that it's the human experience and how real and true that is, and then the truth of how God reveals himself. Can you talk for a moment about your truth as a black man in America? Because I I feel like one of the things that we are insulated from when we can opt out is to hear the stories of what it's like for, for black men and women who are not shot and killed or uh, falsely incarcerated, but who just go through day after day after day with a sense of hypervigilance or with a sense of being wounded in all kinds of different ways. Would you be willing to talk about that? A bit. Yeah, I can a bit. I mean, I, my, uh, I think my hesitancy, even in some of my public writings and um, book and articles, I don't often chronicle too many personal stories because it, they start to, um, it, it almost becomes like this contest of who had it worse. And, you know, and, and, uh, and on some level, there's a certain morbid curiosity in stories of, um, of either violence or outrage or those kinds of things that, that I think, um, I don't know, sometimes people miss it because sometimes it's, it's, it's something that's built up. Now I'll, I'll give you one example. Yes. But I, but I don't mean, but that's the problem. I don't want that to be like somebody listening to this says, well, I know somebody who had it much worse. You know? Um, so, but I'm giving an example because of the subtle nature of things. So when I was a seminary student and I came to seminary, uh, uh, with an engineering degree, and I didn't know how I would do in seminary. I was a little nervous about the work being different than science and math. And uh, but I was doing okay. And but I had a professor in a church history class who he just he he treated me like I was stupid. And I and I've got 
reasons for saying that. Um, and at one particular point when uh, I didn't get an exam back and everybody else had their exam, I, he couldn't find it. And, uh, and he, and when I asked him about it, he says, well, I can't find it. I put it in your mailbox. And he was very dismissive of me. In fact, said it like that very dramatically, like get out of my face. I happened to work security. So I had keys. And when I checked the, behind the mailboxes, he had put it in the mailbox next to mine. And, and, uh, and I had a really high grade. And when I came back in the classroom, he seemed shocked to see that I had uh, the second highest grade in the class. And I think I got the highest grade on the final. He, he genuinely did not think I had the mental ability to do it. And some of the th- way he talked to me, he, I mean, one instance, he talked to me like, I, like uh, some of your folks might be old enough to remember old uh, television shows like the Amos and Andy and Step It Fetch It character. He talked to me with that kind of backwards, you know, draw kind of slow talking, uh, stereotypical uh, black speech that white people put on us from, you know, from uh, early 20th century. And in the classroom did that to me. I mean, it's pretty demoralizing. And to have it done in front of you, in front of the whole classroom when I'm getting the highest grades in the class. So I have stories like that of minimization of people kind of uh, making assumptions, not to mention the fear. Yes. Of, you know, anytime you hear the uh, sirens, you're always looking behind you. Now that I'm older, I sometimes think I'm not going to be treated the same way. I have adult sons and I'm, I fear for them um, because they're right in the demographic that, that, um, that the police seem to be looking at. So yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to trade a bunch of horror stories, but it's in that vein of minimization and uh, and stereotyping that I I have existed in that world. What would you say to the Christians who, and I see a whole segment of them on social media, which I've actually tried to stay away from over the <laughs> last week, who who basically say, you know, the color of our skin doesn't matter because we're just all one in Jesus. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. And, you know, behind that seems to be a dismissive attitude towards what's happening. Yeah. Well, you hit it with that word dismissive. I think there, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, from a theological standpoint, the color seems to matter to God. I mean, he, I mean, God made us in his image and, uh, and however you view the world in a scientific way or the deliberacy of creation or however you read the Babel story, I'm not sure, but at least by the climax, the climax in, uh, in revelation, we definitely see people from all over the world speaking different languages coming from different nationalities all around the throne. Right. And it's a celebratory image of God's, um, Diversity, you see that at Pentecost, certainly. So there's a, there's a theme in Scripture that God not only has is behind ethnic diversity, He celebrates it. And I think when people say that they're colorblind or it doesn't matter, what they're what it seems to be saying is that I see your color as a deficiency, but I'll do my best to not um, acknowledge that and just say we're all the same. It also minimizes the cultural and ethnic uniqueness of of people, which is part of our identity. So I, the only people I hear say that for the most part are white people. And, and I admit that there's white people who for whom their ethnic identity might be more confusing because they don't know what does it mean to be white. They only know it in contrast to ethnic minorities. So it's a it's a challenge, perhaps. 
So I think it minimizes our uniqueness, and I think it also minimizes the the special work that God has done in creation. So you made this kind of allusion in your article about, you know, I can already hear people responding this way. But as you talk about how there's a there's an assumption that there's a deficiency with the skin color or ethnic racial background. You know, I can hear people right away going, but but I don't but I don't think that blacks or any other are deficient. What would you say to people to help them get out of that kind of self-fulfilling loop? Hmm. Well, um, honestly, I, I, I don't know uh, right off the bat. I, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that we we often encourage people to read, you know, to, to, to look at what experts have done and to um, perhaps uh, acquaint themselves with, with what the sociologists and other experts have seen about humanity. So there's so on one level, it's an education level, but I think on the other level, maybe there is something that is um, uh, spiritually missing when you have to make uh, the world be, mono something or other for you to to accept it. I think there may be a couple of things going on. So I, I'm hesitating in, in coming up with the best answer because I honestly think people mean well, you know, they want to they want to sort of equalize everything. But but it's but that's not really the issue. You know, my friend Drew Hart, he had that book, The Trouble I've Seen on Race in America. And he talks about meeting with a pastor who a white pastor who said to him, you know, we're, and he was in a McDonald's and he, and he was showing him the cup. And he said, you know, if I turn the cup around, I can see your side and then you can see my side as if we were just, you know, two equals coming to the table and just have to share from our two experiences. And what Drew was pointing out is that, well, no, I've already, as a black person in America, had to know your world. This is what I got schooled in. This is what life in America means but you've never really had to know my world. So it's not like we've got two people just sharing information about themselves. There's, there's been a dominant uh, culture that we've all had to learn and swim in, even when some of it's been mythical. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I, I, I hear people wanting to, um, to uh, sort of equalize things, but I, I think it just is naive to ignore the journey of people who have been on the margins in our society. Brings up the idea to me, since you referred to the spiritual aspect of this, theologically, the idea of incarnation, mm-hmm. of entering into what is other, mm-hmm. uh, to take it further, to, to do it even in physical form of going into neighborhoods, going into friendships, experiences, um, that really requires humility mm-hmm. on on the part of whites and or a majority to say, I don't know. And um, I I need to learn. Say more about mythical. You talked about culture, uh, even though some of those assumptions are mythical. Yeah. Well, I I will answer that, but I do want to actually even come back to that humility thing you said. So hopefully I'll do that in a minute. But um, what I mean by mythical is, uh, and others have written on this, I'm, I'm not a historian. So I'll say that straight out. But there is a myth of America's Christianity, a myth of America being built by rugged individualism, and and, and a myth of this America um, of a nation of immigrants where different people are, you know, they come in and they become part of this melting pot. And I'm saying the reality of it is, you know, America, whatever that is, this, this nation, however we want to define that, has actually always depended on 
exploiting people. And there's not been this rugged individualism. Take, for example, all the Asian Americans who came when, when slavery was outlawed, they still needed cheap labor. So all these Asians come, particularly Chinese, and work on the railroad. And, and there's a lot of stories of how dehumanized, um, they, how they were treated, right? And then, of course, we get that famous picture when the East meets West and, uh, and the uh, railroad is done across the country. And there's not an Asian in the picture, right? There's these white business people and others in there as if the railroad was accomplished by just this white strength and ingenuity. No, that's, that's not an accurate picture. That's a myth. So that's what I'm getting at. There, there's, there's a myth of how the country was built. If we leave out the exploitation of people of color, if we leave out the um, dismantling and destruction of indigenous Americans. So it's not to say that you can't recover in some way from horrors of the past. It is to say, if you don't face up to them, they will always keep haunting. And I think that that's what's happened. And now I'm no expert on South Africa, but certainly they, to some degree, they have tried to uh, deal with the past in some way as they were pressing forward, you know, after the um, dismantling of apartheid. So I think here in our country, we've had a reluctance to, to uh, talk about the pains of the past. You hear ethnic minorities bringing those things up and white people get upset and they'll say, well, don't talk about that. You're bringing race into it. No, it's always been in it. And that, so the myth I'm referring to is to think that we've had an America that did not exploit um, people of color. And uh, the myth of believing that one interpretation of history is correct. Uh, because I remember hearing, well, oh, if that's a liberal perspective, then it's revisionist history. It's not really accurate yeah. history. And again, what if, what if there's multiple perspectives and actual realities that are very different than how we perceive it? Right. Um, and I think that's why, going back to something you said earlier, in terms of listening to, to others, I think that part of what we do in history is try to reconstruct um, those narratives we try to learn from the from the various stories i i mean i don't maybe it's uh, uh revisionist in the in a negative sense where people think um um something's got changed or altered but i think it's revisionist right in the sense that we're learning that what we were taught wasn't the full picture so yeah i mean i I, I mean, I take something as simple as my last name, Edwards, right? I have no idea how I got that name. And uh, it, it's an it's a English name, and I don't know of any English ancestors. We can't really tell our history beyond a certain point in this country. So, so the reality of it is there is part of our history that's ugly. And, and rather than ignoring that, we should have, as a nation, wrestled with it to the point where we said, what do we need to do to, to, to make things be different and that different be better? Instead, we, we have largely, and I hear this a lot from the Christians, we've tried to ignore it because we say it doesn't matter. It's in the past. But the past always impacts the present. Yeah, as a psychotherapist, I'm aware of how that happens, even on the individual or marital level. Yeah, and so it's 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 only going to happen infinitely more on the cultural level when you're dealing with millions or hundreds of millions of people. That's a good point. I, I wanted to come back to that incarnation thing you said really yeah. quickly, because 
the scriptural passage that many have been wrestling with, and I'm, I include myself in that, is the Philippians passage there, chapter 2, starting even from 1 all the way down to 11, where the Apostle Paul is pleading for this unity in the congregation that would make his joy complete, as he puts it. And then he goes on to say, consider others better than yourself. And here's the picture, you know, be like Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited for personal gain, but he emptied himself. And we all say we want to be like Jesus, and we sing that. And and in many ways, people of color, Christians particularly, have often been serving the larger body of Christ in so many ways, in many thankless ways, and and it hasn't always gone the other way. So I think this notion of incarnation is a powerful one that you bring up, that there may be there, there may be more to explore there for white Christians. And I allude to it in the in the essay in Christianity Today. I just briefly I mentioned that uh Philippians too, because I think that we can we could as a people, as Christian people, but I'm gonna say particularly white Christians, find a lot to be Christ like if we could learn or if they could learn to um to give up in order to gain another paradox of the kingdom. I love that. Um, that phrase of incarnation came out of a book I'm reading by Wendy Farley, who is a, a, a gay theologian um, in, I believe, at Redlands College. She mm-hmm. used to be at Emory, and she has a book called Gathering Those Driven Away. Wow. And it, it looks at the idea of incarnation through uh, a theology of the oppressed, and it's North American oppression as opposed to Latin American oppression like liberation theology. So um, thank you for following up on that. Two questions, they're interrelated, uh, and then we can wrap up with the second one. This is another thing I've been observing. I've heard Christians say and seen on social media, well, you know, the only solution is Jesus. And of course, the the answer is always Jesus, right? Like the kid in Sunday school. Um, But what are the questions? Hopefully that's being redefined right now. But as I think about that, the answer is Jesus. Um, So much of the Bible Belt and other Christian groups have, for the last couple of centuries, been explicitly overtly racist um, or where there's just pockets of that being far more prevalent, accepted and encouraged. So if yes, the answer is Jesus, of course, that has social, political, cultural, uh, financial donating, go protest, get to know the person who's other. But when you hear that, where does your mind go? (laughs) Well, thank you for asking that, because it's probably one of the things that irks me the most. (laughs) I've even given talks, and sometimes it's been people of color who say, well, well, we just need Jesus. And I think what you're saying, I don't disagree with, but what you really mean is not what everybody else is hearing. (laughs) In other words, for some people, when they hear we just need Jesus, it's Jesus packaged the way that they have already been packaging him. He's white. He's American. He's about their personal um, ticket to heaven. So, so it's not that I would disagree. We do need Jesus, but we need a, a robust picture of Jesus. Jesus who upsets the, the, the apple cart, if you will, who, who reorient, reorients our whole lives, who, who, um, who dismantles the, uh, the things that we were holding on to as idols. I mean, that, yeah, we need a Jesus, but we need that idol smashing Jesus 
the iconoclast Jesus. And and in many ways, we've created a different Jesus. So uh, so I feel like that answer is so simplistic because if we if we and, and that's and I and some folks think, you know, we're just talking politics as if that's a dirty word. Now, honestly, I think that if enough Christians really saw Jesus in a, in a better light or in a more, you know, encompassing or a bigger uh, way, it would lead to some policy changes because we, we wouldn't want to have any structures that were oppressive to, to fellow human beings, even if they were not other Christians, even if they're just human beings, we wouldn't want any system to be oppressive if we had a fuller sense, a bigger picture of Jesus. Yeah. Well, the, the name of this podcast and the name of our ministry is Restoring the Soul. And mm-hmm. um, I'd like to like to think that one of the, if not the primary purses, per, reason why Jesus came and lived and died and rose is for restoration, the restoration of all things, a restored mm-hmm. humanity where mm-hmm. all of us are at, at that throne and at the table. Mm-hmm. So here's my last question. For, give me a seven-point plan for fixing all this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah. it's time to plug my book, right? Because then, no, the well, book is not a seven-point plan. But. No, so I, I want to, I pre-ordered your book. It's on Amazon. When is when is it coming out, by the way? Uh, September 8th, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so talk about your book for a minute. Uh, the title is Might from the Margins, and the subtitle is The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice. The turn the tables is sort of an allusion to Jesus um, in the temple there. But the uh, Might from the Margins, I'm basically trying to make a case that I think the Bible is made, but I just want to make it explicit that our um, the way of Christ, the way of Jesus, is not the way of the people we take to be the most powerful in our society. The way of Jesus is found in people that are presumed powerless, the people that don't have status, children women for many years, people of color, ethnic minorities, people who are not uh, physically able-bodied. This is where we look for Jesus. And uh, our prophets emerge from that group, our people who can help diagnose injustice, people who who can turn their righteous anger into um, the correct kind of activism. I mean, this this is where we see Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself came as part of an oppressed minority within the Roman Empire, came at a time where his people were on the margins. So that's that's the basic issue. And so even though I say that in a couple of sentences, of course, I tease that a lot more in, in the 10 chapters. But I want people to know that I also try to center the voice of those on the margins rather than it being a book that's about white people trying to learn a lesson. It's a book that celebrates all of us marginalized people, I hope, in a way that blows wind in our sails and helps us to, to lock arms in solidarity. And it sounds like it's more than just an idea of this, uh, of this power from the margins, but it's a hermeneutic. It's a worldview. It's a way yeah. of looking at the scriptures and at stories and every person and every culture is a story. Yes. Well said. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I can't yeah, wait. Keep that going. Then maybe I can give you the best <laughs> copy of the book and you can say it. Cause that was, that you said it very well there. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, if you're looking for endorsements, I would be happy to do that. Um, it, uh, the, the title alone caught me right away. I have a sister, actually, that used to teach as an adjunct at North Park, where you're a full-time faculty, and uh, she did her master's in liberation theology and then got a doctorate at Northwestern, wow. and she's a, a blue-eyed, fair-skinned uh, woman who lived in Nicaragua for uh, a couple of years. So the, the whole idea of the, 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 the power of the weak and the theology um, it seems like even white people have a hard time understanding the Beatitudes in a way that reflects that first century Palestinian context in which Jesus taught them to dark skinned people, by the way. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. You know, I, I think I gravitated toward Anabaptism um, partly because of the way Anabaptists see those, see the, see the Beatitudes. I mean, one thing quickly is some, some folks in the, in the worlds that I used to be in as a young guy would see those as like commands of how we're supposed to get our act together. Like if you could just be, you know, uh, poor in spirit, God would, would, uh, would give you the kingdom. If you could just be um, rather than sort of pronouncements on people who are in these places, you know, um, blessed are those who mourn. I mean, there are people who are already mourning and, and Jesus is pronouncing blessing on them, even though it doesn't appear that their status is one that would be blessed. So, so I think you're right. And the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start when we want to talk about the, the ethics of the kingdom and how they might be lived out in every culture all time. I think that's, that's a good place to go. So back to my facetious uh, seven-point plan. Based on your book mm-hmm. and what you, and you mentioned that you and your wife have done to speak mm-hmm. into these issues for a number of years, mm-hmm. that, that one of the primary things is for for whites to begin to consider the worldview and the nature of power, that power under, uh, that power in weakness, that power in vulnerability, that power in other, all of that is the reality of what brings forth healing and unity. Would you just uh, expand upon your own idea that I summarized? Yeah. (laughs) No, that's awesome. You know, it's funny because we're in a, in a weird time where, we, we know that. I think when I say we, I think we Christians know that, but we don't really, really deeply believe it because, you know, there's a rallying now around phrases like, um, you know, America first or, or the greatness of America. There's a tremendous amount of money we put into the military. Now, I know some people get angry right away and say, well, don't you think we should keep ourselves safe? I mean, I think that the weird thing is that the kingdom values of Jesus are so different than what we think, it's frightening because we put a lot of energy into maintaining our own um, human bodies and our own uh, personal desires. And we even have created theologies around our own personal desires and happiness that we miss this self-giving, powerful message of Jesus that is really loving God and loving neighbor, which is which is way more radical than bringing cookies when they move in. You know, it, there's, there's something about this, this self-emptying love that I think if people could really, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn that uh, for myself. And I think America has protected itself. American Christians have protected themselves by saying, well, look, we've got, we got to have a big army. We've got to be strong. We've got to be in your face. And a lot of them are behind our current president uh, who, who, who projects this kind of uh, image and I think rather than critique it, they have said, yes, I want that because there's something about that that feels empowering to them. But it's 
opposite the way of Jesus. I mean, I, I don't even know any other way to say that. Maybe this is an opportunity for our country to, to reorient and reexamine everything. Um, and I know that's a process. Yeah. And that's something that we would all like hope and pray for. But but it's hard work and it comes down to one heart, one soul, one conversation at a time. Yeah. Yes, that's true on a, in a sense. But I also think there are some bigger, big movements that are not. Yes, there's a both and for me. There's the one at heart at a time, which is like a conversion, right? I mean, there's a, because uh, we, we pray that way. We preach that way. We do our church that way. We want, maybe it's one heart at a time. But I think simultaneous with that, there are some policy things, right? I mean, if the, and policy things may impact a bunch of people at one time. So if I can, if I, if I, as an institution, doesn't have to be the whole government, but if I have an institution that, that continually makes it difficult for black people to survive there, right? Even though I say we want you to come, but then I make it really hard for you to survive. Then it's not a matter of one heart at a time. It's a matter of changing this culture, right? So that the institution at least becomes safe enough that now I can have those one at a time um, conversions. So, so I think it's a both and, and sometimes environments are, are just too hostile for us so that there's no chance for, for people to rub shoulders and get to know each other because some black folks, it's just not safe for us to be there. Yeah. Well, on that note, I want that thought to sink in to all of our listeners. And would you come back on the program when your book is coming out and just unpack that? Oh, I'd love to. That would be awesome. And thank you for for reaching out and and for understanding my needs as a person, as well as as um, as a scholar, you know, not just what I can give, but who I am. So thank you for that. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, thank you. God bless you and your family. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.